Today's program, the third in a four-part four series, the controversy over conversion and some potential solutions. You're going to hear about a very interesting um, uh, thing that's going on now and how, it, why, how and why it is causing uh, waves in the Jewish world. Um, and our speaker is Rabbi David Kalb, the rabbi of the Jewish Learning Center of New York, where he's responsible for the creative, educational, spiritual, and programmatic direction of the organization. He also serves as a teacher and a guide to students who are pursuing conversion. That's what we'll hear about tonight. Additionally, Rabbi Kalb is an associate faculty member of Klal, the National Jewish Center for Learning and Leadership, and a senior rabbinic fellow at the Shalom Hartman Institute. Oh, gosh. Uh, one thing I wanted to mention that I mentioned before that's quite interesting is before becoming rabbi at the Jewish Learning Center of New York, he was the director of learning and innovation at Central Synagogue. Why is that interesting? Because he's the first Orthodox rabbi to serve in a senior level position at a major reform congregation. So um, he's very comfortable with the, uh, the crossing some boundaries. And um, as I said, you'll hear more about it. Be, be, prior to uh, working at Central Synagogue, Rabbi Kalb served as the director of Jewish education at 92nd Street Y in New York City. He's lectured all around the country, all around the world. Um, and he's written for a variety, he's written articles in a variety of um, publications, including the Huffington Post, Haaretz, Jerusalem Post, New York Jewish Week, JTA, and Jerusalem Report. He received his BA uh, through the joint program between Columbia University and JTS, and rabbinic ordination from Rabbi Shlomo Riskin, who, again, I believe we're going to meet with when we go to Israel, um, Rosh HaYeshiva of Yeshivat HaMiftar and Efrat in Israel. And uh, please join me in welcoming Rabbi David Kalb to <laughs> Temple Bat Yam, Newport Beach. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so we're going to talk a little bit about um, conversion um, tonight, um, conversion in um, Israel and conversion in America and perhaps in um, some other places and how the conversion program that I'm working in, both in Israel and America, is a little bit different than other um, Orthodox conversion programs. Um, I begin with um, the year 1989. Um, starting in around 1989, um, we start seeing Russians from the former Soviet Union um, coming to um, Israel uh, because of um, the Soviet Union falling. Uh, between 1989 and 2006, approximately 1.6 million Russians um, have emigrated um, to um, Israel. Now, approximately 400,000 um, of these um, Soviet Jews are what we call in the industry Jewish non-Jews, okay? It's a very interesting category of Jew. You've heard it all, Reform Jews, Conservative Jews, Orthodox Jews, these are Jewish non-Jews. They're sort of Jew-ish, right? So what does that mean? What it means is, is that while they um, are ethnically Jewish, and they identify as Jews, and they even feel a connection to Judaism, certainly a strong enough connection to Judaism that they've chosen to make aliyah, to immigrate to Israel, and in many cases serve in the um, Israeli army. They are not halachically Jewish. They are not um, Jewish from a Jewish legal point of view. What does that mean? It means that maybe it's their father who's Jewish, but their mother is not Jewish. 
Or it might not even mean that. It might mean that they have a grandfather or a great-grandfather on their father's side who makes them Jewish. In other words, there is Jewish ethnicity in them, but they are not halakhically Jewish. So, very simple. These people can convert, no problem, and move on with their life. But it doesn't get that easy. Why? What happens? They encounter the chief rabbinate of Israel, which is a tough bunch of guys, and they put on um, a tremendous level of bureaucracy um, in their way, um, and even where there's not so much bureaucracy, the standards of conversion are extreme uh, beyond uh, belief. Therefore, this problem goes on till this day to some degree. While this problem is going on, there are more open-minded um, modern Orthodox rabbis in Israel who attempt to negotiate with the chief rabbinate's office and to find a way to easily convert these people. Um, this goes on for many years, and what's interesting to keep in mind is these more modern Orthodox rabbis who are negotiating with the chief rabbinate's office are in some cases part of the chief rabbinate system. In other words, they serve as chief rabbis of cities in some cases, which by definition makes them a part of the chief rabbinate system. And even though they're part of that system, they will not, their views will not be accepted by the chief rabbinate's office on this issue of conversion. Um, after trying to negotiate um, with, um, these, uh, with the chief rabbi's office for many, many years, they eventually decide to um, form um, their own alternative system to conversion in Israel. It's called Beit Din Gior Kahalacha. Now, before I tell you about Beit Din Gior Kahalacha in detail and why it is necessary to have this solution for these Russian Jews um, in Israel, let me explain to you the implication of what it's like for these people to be not halakhically Jewish in the state of Israel. First, let's go backwards a little bit. Keep in mind that the Ministry of Absorption in Israel, who handles people's aliyah, people's immigration to Israel, and the chief rabbinate's office in Israel have different standards for who's a Jew, right? So for the Ministry of Absorption, if you are patrilineal descent Jewish, you're Jewish. If you're matrilineal descent Jewish, you're Jewish. If you were converted by a reform rabbi, a conservative rabbi, a reconstructionist rabbi, a Jewish renewal rabbi, or an orthodox rabbi who's not accepted by the chief rabbinate's office, someone like me, you're accepted. That's for the purpose of immigration. But for to have a life cycle event performed in the state of Israel, your conversion or your status of being Jewish needs to be confirmed by the chief rabbinate's office because they control marriage and burial in the state of Israel. So as a result, these people can't marry in the state of Israel. And in fact, you'll go around Israel and if you pass like a travel agency, you'll see a very interesting phenomenon of what they're offering is um, destination wedding trips to, anyone want to take a guess? Cyprus. Right, Cyprus, because there what you can do is you can go there, get married in Cyprus however you want, come back, and then you can register um, to be as married in Israel. As long as it was done outside of Israel, 
that's okay. It just can't be done in Israel. With burial, it gets even a little bit more complicated because let's go back to the situation of some of these very brave um, Russians who served in advanced units in the Israeli army. They can get killed in combat in the state of Israel and not be buried normatively on Har Herzl, the national cemetery in Israel, which is comparable to Arlington Cemetery, right? And again, it would seem in, I think, many of our minds that the um, statement of serving in combat in the Israeli army couldn't be more of a greater statement of your connection to Judaism and the Jewish people. Anyway, as I said, the chief rabbinate's office will not budge on this issue, and um, they, these more open-minded Orthodox rabbis um, start forming their own um, beitin called Beitin Gior Kahalacha. Now, the name itself is a controversial name. What does that name mean? Um, court, Jewish legal court for conversion in accordance with halacha, in accordance with Jewish law. And that's sort of a tongue-in-cheek way to say the chief rabbinate's office is a conversion court based on, anyone want to tell me what the answer is? Politics. Whereas this Beitin is based on the actual laws of Judaism. And what we see is that the actual laws of Judaism regarding conversion are far more open-minded, and the tradition of conversion to, uh, in Judaism is a much more open-minded tradition than what is being practiced by uh, the chief rabbinate's office. So this Beitin, and one of the members of that Beitin is my boss, Rabbi Shlomo Riskin, who is the chief rabbi of Afrat. Afrat's a big city um, in Israel, and he's also the um, chancellor of the Or Torah Stone um, um, network of Jewish educational um, organizations in Israel and America and in some other places around the world. He's a part of the group that had been negotiating with the chief rabbi's office and that forms Beitin Gior Kalacha. So they open up shop and they start converting these Russians. So far, they've converted approximately 2,000, and the goal is in the next five years, the Beitin hopes to double that rate um, of conversion. Now, it's a very important goal to uh, work on it and to work on it quick and to get as many of these people converted as possible because the number is only exponentially increasing. Why is that? Because most secular Israeli men will be happy to marry, assuming they fall in love and like them, a Russian woman who's in this category, and therefore all those children that come from that relationship, are, those are non-Jewish Jews as well. So the problem gets worse as time goes on. So one of the things that this Beit Dean is doing is not only converging adults, but doing a lot of child conversion. Um, now, the question is, has this baiting made things any better, right, for these Russian Jews in Israel? In other words, can they get married? Can they get buried normatively? So the answer is a complicated answer. The answer is yes and no. Now, what do I mean by that? Yes, in two possible ways. A rabbi, a chief rabbi of a city in Israel, has the right to register someone for marriage independently of the chief rabbi's office. And it happens to be that many of the members of 
Beitin Gior Kalacha, these more open-minded rabbis who are performing these more open-minded Orthodox conversions, are chief rabbis of cities. So theoretically, they can recognize these people as Jewish and then perform their weddings and have those registered, kind of doing a rear run around the chief rabbi's office. However, the chief rabbi's office got wind of this and tried to stop and is trying to stop this as well. So that is now in courts, right? So the question that still remains is, is their life any better? So I guess the basic answer is, technically speaking, in terms of these rights in Israel, probably not, right? There are a number of Orthodox rabbis in Israel performing illegal wedding ceremonies of these people and other people who fall into these categories, where a conversion occurred that was done in a halachic manner, in a Jewish legal manner, but not recognized by the chief rabbi's office. Nonetheless, the work that this Beit Din is doing is important. How so? What this Beit Din is achieving is they're creating facts on the ground. Right? For many years, many different people, many different institutions, many different organizations, not just Orthodox on the more liberal side of Orthodoxy, but Reform and Conservative and Reconstructionist rabbis have tried negotiating with various Israeli governments and had litigation going on in courts trying to open up the issue of conversion in Israel. And to a large degree, nothing has been accomplished by this legislation or by the litigation in courts. The answer that we believe will work in ultimately changing this issue is to essentially create facts on the ground. The conversions on a certain level are a form of civil disobedience. In other words, we have decided we are going to convert these people and you have to deal with it. The question is when we get to the magic number. There will be a certain magic number where it will be very hard for the chief rabbinate's office to really be taken seriously when the premier modern orthodox rabbis in Israel are converting through this process and not through the chief rabbinate's office. Because what you need to keep in mind is the chief rabbinate's office is no longer the place where the top-notch rabbis are. It's to your detriment to be a great scholar of Torah and to run for election for the chief rabbi's office. What you need to do to become the chief rabbi of Israel is to be, is to be an expert in politics and bureaucracy. If you're a scholar of Torah, it's to your detriment running for office in the chief rab for the chief rabbi position. In fact, if anything, one of the best things that can help you to become one of the chief rabbis of Israel is to be a criminal. And we see that there is one former chief rabbi who will be going to jail, most likely, Rabbi Metzger. And what is he going to jail for? Selling conversions. What a surprise, right? So what I think will eventually come out of this is either an acceptance of these converts or something that I think might even be even bigger than acceptance for these conversions. Now, I can't say that everyone working in this field is of my point of view, and I only want to speak for myself in this piece of my presentation. What I believe this might eventually lead to is the elimination of the chief rabbinate's office. It will make them irrelevant, and to me, that is the best thing that can happen for Judaism in Israel. Judaism in Israel is suffering because of the chief rabbi in its office. It is looked at as best 
as bureaucratic and at worst as coercive and extreme and turning people off to Judaism left and right. I believe what we are doing will lead to a further separation of religion and state in Israel, which could be the most healthy thing, not only for government in Israel, but for religion in Israel as well. Now, what you have to keep in mind is there's already a lot of chinks in the chain for the chief rabbinate's office. We're just a part of that chink in the chain. Think about it logically. Who does the chief rabbinate's office represent? Who is the constituency of the chief rabbi's office? It's certainly not the Chiloni, the secular Jews of Israel. They're certainly not interested in the chief rabbi's office. It's not the Haredim. It's not the ultra-Orthodox um, Jews of Israel. In fact, they have, interestingly enough, an independent Beitim that operates outside of the chief rabbi's office, and they handle their own affairs. It's not the true, what we call Dati Le'umi, the true modern Orthodox Jews of Israel, because they're more or less with us, right? So who does the chief rabbinate represent? Who is their constituent? The answer is no one. What the chief rabbinate has essentially become is a DMV. <laughs> and who likes going to the DMV? No one. You certainly don't have a spiritual experience at the DMV. You just kind of have to hold your mind together when you're in the DMV. I don't know, maybe the Irvine DMV is better than the Bronx DMV, I don't know, but I can't imagine it's a lot better. In general, I think most people's experience with the DMV is they rather get a root canal at the dentist's office. That's what it's like functioning with the chief rabbit. You're going through a bureaucratic system that you have to go to because it just exists, not because there's any spiritual value in this institution. Right, now, the other thing you have to keep in mind is the Rabbanut is probably now, I would say, the most despised institution probably in Israel. A close second would be Hamas, probably, <laughs> right? It's not just, it's not just in the area of conversion and marriage and our situation with the Russians and Reform and Conservative Jews and Reconstructionist Jews and Jewish Renewal Jews with their situation. There's all kinds of other things going on that have nothing to do with conversion, right, or marriage, where the chief rabbinate's office is under siege. I'll give you really one very generic issue that you wouldn't imagine would be such an issue, but it's become an issue. Kashrut. And I know some of you might have met with Rabbi Aaron Friedman from Hashkacha Pratit. I'm sorry? I'm sorry, Aaron Leibowitz from Hashkacha Pratit. Did any of you meet with him on your trip to Israel? Right. So it's very important to understand what he's doing. Because um, it's really an example of this phenomenon of the chief rabbi's office being under siege. Um, in Israel, the chief rabbinate runs Kashri. Now, how does that happen? How does it actually work? Well, here's how it works, right? Um, if, you have, if you have a bakolet, if you have a market, or if you have a restaurant of any kind, right, the chief rabbi sends you a mashkiach, sends you a kosher food supervisor. However, that kosher food supervisor has the right to negotiate with you his salary. And that salary comes directly from the owner of the restaurant, the owner of the supermarket, right? Now, 
that's just not a best practice. You're just opening yourself up to trouble. That's gonna definitely challenge the quality control and cost route, and it's also gonna open yourself up to economic abuse. I think anyone knows that by definition. What is Rabbi Aaron Leibowitz doing with the organization Hashgacha Pratit, which by the way is a play on words. It's a, it's, it's both means kosher certification naturally, but it simultaneously means divine providence. So he's saying that in a tongue-in-cheek way too. Anyone challenging the chief, chief, chief rabbinate's office, you gotta have a sense of humor, right? Anyway, so what he does is he's created the radical idea of having an NGO, a non-governmental organization which supervises kashrut, and the kashrut food supervisor, the mashkiach, gets paid by that organization with an objective fee. Where does the money come from? The restaurant of the market, but they're charged an objective fee based on the level of work that it will take to get it done, based on your size, based how often you're open. Are you meat? Are you dairy? What's going on? There's a real reason for what you're being charged. So I think what's interesting about what Rabbi Leibowitz is doing is here's an issue that's not so ideologically charged. It's not about like a, a philosophy of Judaism. It's not about marriage. It's not about conversion. But there again, it's taking a chink out of the control of the chief rabbi's office. Right? Okay. Now, um, Rabbi Riskin, after being involved with this for a couple years or so, contacts me. I'm an old student of his. I received ordination from him in Israel a number of years ago. So he comes to me and he says to me the following. He says, look, the situation that's going on with the Russians in Israel is very comparable to a situation going on in America. There's lots of people who want to pursue Orthodox conversion in America, and it's very bureaucratic, right? It's very extreme, it's not very welcoming, it's not very warm. Let's create an alternative approach to conversion for Jews who want to pursue Orthodox conversion in America. I'd like you to start it off for me, right, and create this program. So I say, okay, I'll do it. So we create a 36-week class that meets once a week for two hours, where we take you through a formalized curriculum of a whole study of Judaism. Um, and we ask you to become Jewishly observant by the end of um, the process. We open it up, we didn't know how many students we get, we get um, 30 students sign up right away within the first couple days of, of, of offering it online. We meet in New York, downtown, in the East Village. Um, we also do something else very alternative. The final stage of conversion takes place in the state of Israel. You're flown for free, both the convert and the partner, if there's a partner in the mix, to Israel. You go on a trip to Israel for about a week, and then the final stage of conversion happens in the city of Ephrat at Rabbi Riskin's mikvah with his beiti. I kind of think of it as a conversion version of birthrights, of a birthright trip to Israel. Now, who takes this class? Our main population, I would say, are interdating um, couples, where one partner is Jewish and one partner um, is not Jewish and wants to um, convert. 
we get people from different Jewish backgrounds. That is, the partner comes from different, a different Jewish background, and therefore their partner, their non-Jewish partner, is oriented maybe towards whatever their partner's relationship to Judaism is. So I'd say we have people coming from Orthodox backgrounds, conservative backgrounds, reform backgrounds, Reconstructionist backgrounds, Jewish renewal backgrounds, as well as non-affiliated. We also, strangely enough, I know this is going to really blow people's minds away, but every now and then we just get single people who show up and say to us, I want to be Jewish. And I say to them, why? <laughs> you know, don't you see what's going on? Don't you see how crazy it is? Now, what is interesting is I think there is this kind of conventional wisdom out there on the part of a lot of Jews and a lot of rabbis, my sense is, that somehow single people who want to convert to Judaism just for the sake of converting, that they're going to be the better converts, right? And people in relationships with Judaism, they will not be the better converts. That's complete nonsense, and it's not true in any way, shape, or form. Most of the people who we took on, right, who were in, who were in single, not in relationships to Jews, and just wanted to convert for the sake of converting, didn't end up converting in the end. They weren't able to finish the program. Now, it's not surprising if you think about it logically. Why? They're not tied in with a Jewish family, right? And they're probably not tied into a community. So there's, that's a big part of your connectivity to Judaism. It's not just about studying Jewish texts and you know, learning about theology. You have to be part of a community. Also, um, in the screening process, and we do a very major screening process for everybody who enters it, it's not uncommon for people in this category, and I don't want to cast aspersions on it, but this has been my experience. Sometimes there's something psychological going on, and, and you have to be very, very careful about it. Even, and even with kind of passing the psychological test, there still was, in, in many cases, they weren't able to get it done. We only were really able to get, I think, one person to date in that category through, and five people came to us from that category. Now, there's another category of person who comes to us as well, and this is a fascinating category. Um, this is what we call crypto-Jews. Yet another category of Jews that you might not know about. Crypto-Jews are Jews from um, Spanish, uh, Hispanic, Latino descent who probably go all the way back in their family um, to the Spanish Inquisition. And they, were, they come from families of Moranos, Jews who were hiding the fact that they were Jewish in the late 1400s in Spain, in Portugal, acting outwardly Catholic and secretly practicing Judaism. By and large, most of these Jews, we don't have exact numbers, but by and large, most of them weren't able to keep it up and eventually assimilated into mainstream Catholicism in Spain and Portugal. Now, in many cases, these people have spread out throughout the world, not knowing their family background. We find them in New York. We find them in New Mexico. I'm sure you find them here in California. Um, you find them in Arizona. You find them in Puerto Rico, right? And they all have very strange customs. And when they interact with a normative Jewish person, they'll find out what their custom was about. For example, they'll do things like, not knowing why they're doing it, lighting candles in the basement on Friday night. Why? Because Moranos, when they were secretly practicing Judaism, right, would light the candles in a secret location, like the basement. 
Here already, they don't know of their background. They just think it's a family tradition as a Catholic person in this Spanish family to light candles in the basement on Friday night. When they make eggs, they might crack the egg and put it into a glass and look at it before they fry it. What are they doing? They're looking for a blood spot. But they don't know that they're looking for a blood spot. They don't know anything about kashri. They'll just say, this is how my mother taught me to fry an egg. Right? They'll say, I have to get home from work on Friday before sundown. And you'll say to them, why? And they'll say, it's a family tradition. They won't know its Jewish connection. But they'll interact with a Jewish person at some point, and then they'll say, you know, I think you want to want to look into your background, right? Sure enough, they'll do some genealogy. They might even go to visit Spain and find their name on the, in Barcelona on the Inquisition list, which has the record still exists till this day. Sometimes they'll also do genetic testing. So we have one person in that category. He was... Um, a um, Latino Jew, um, a Latino Christian living in the South Bronx in New York. His father is a pastor, and he now discovered his Jewish roots, and he's becoming Jewish. He's almost done. He just actually texted me um, uh, this morning, and he just got his circumcision. So he's getting much, much closer. Um, by the way, you know, that's something to note. Um, you know, the men who do this, and it's a disproportionate amount of women who we convert, but we do have some men. That's quite a sacrifice, I have to uh, just say. Is it a friendly test? <laughs> what do you mean? No, he, 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 he was very happy to tell me. The only, the, the only part of it that was, I would say not friendly, it was just like, I won't be meeting with you for a couple weeks. <laughs> you know, I, my walking isn't great right now, you know? Right, so um, we've now added a second location. We opened up a second program in Baltimore, and we hope to add um, more locations as well. We're looking at Philadelphia as a third um, location as well. We now have 50 students um, in the program, and we're just getting larger um, all um, the time. Now, the question is, how are the acceptance of my converts doing? That's the big question. No better than the Russian converts. But again, we believe uh, we're in a situation um, where we're creating facts on the ground. Now, when I say no better than the Russian converts, um, by definition, our converts can't be accepted in Israel for life cycle events. They could be accepted for immigration purposes, but they're in the same category as the Russians. Because anyone in America to be accepted fully in Israel, they have to go what's called through the RCA GPS system. That's the system of record in America that the chief rabbinate recognizes, and they have a similar approach to conversion as the chief rabbi's office. So it's very hard for converts to work their way through that system, and in many cases, um, many of our candidates first tried in earnest to work their way through that system and found it very bureaucratic, very extreme, um, not welcoming, not warm in any way, uh, shape, or form. Um, now, um, let's, I think, actually, I'd like to stop now because I'm sure a number of you have questions and then we'll go to a, a different issue. Oh, wait, just one other point before I do that. Um, while our converts are not yet finding that acceptance in Israel, what we have found is that they're finding acceptance in places we'd be surprised by in America. Now, Acceptance with conversion in the Orthodox community, by and large in the past, has worked based on who's doing the conversion. 
what the organization is, who's the rabbi involved. We're changing that dynamic. We're not getting our converts accepted by Orthodox institutions because of who we are. We're getting accepted because of what we're doing. And I think we're changing a very important dynamic in so doing. I don't think it's relevant who you are. I don't want to make who's a Jew about who's a rabbi. I want to make it about the substance and the content of what we're doing in our program. And what's making our converts accepted is not about me. It's about what we're achieving with our converts. They're doing a substantive study of Judaism. They're growing in their Jewish observance. And that is what's getting various Orthodox institutions that I would kind of be surprised by to accept them. So I'll just give you two situations where I was pleasantly surprised, and it was both based on what we're doing with our converts. So um, Philadelphia is a much more of, I would say, a right-wing city when it comes to the Orthodox Jewish community. We had um, a candidate who converted through us and um, who um, was going to be marrying um, a young Jewish man from Philadelphia. Um, this young Jewish man comes from a fairly right-wing Orthodox family, um, and he had kind of left the fold and had not become and become very unobservant. Um, and this had always been um, a challenge within the family. It always kind of troubled them, and and whatever they did um, never turned him on to Judaism. Several of his brothers. Um, are fairly right-wing, ultra-Orthodox rabbis, black hats, the whole nine yards. Um, his sisters are married to ultra-Orthodox um, rabbis. And this obviously troubled all of them, and no matter what they tried, nothing worked. And then he met this woman who wasn't Jewish, right? And that, you know, you can imagine how that affected them. Um, they came into our program, and not only did this woman go through the whole program and convert, but this young man became observant. He became observant on his terms. Before this, anything that was going on Jewishly in his life, he viewed as coercion. He viewed as being pushed into something. For the first time in his life, and this is a guy who went to day school his entire life, he said, I, I'm starting to see Judaism in my own way, on my terms in a way that I can accept it, in a way that I can look at it. Um, and that's something that we often see with our candidates, because we make the, Jew the, non the Jewish partner take the class along with the conversion candidate. And very often, many of our partners have never, either found, never found a connection to Judaism or had been turned off long ago because of kind of the extreme nature of the background that they had with Judaism. This class got him into Judaism. So then they asked me if I would perform the wedding in Philadelphia. Now, I knew of the more right-wing kind of background to Philadelphia in the Orthodox community, and I didn't know how this was going to go. Anyway, I get there. The Orthodox rabbi of his community put out the word that Rabbi Calvin, Rabbi Riskin's conversions will be accepted. And he, while I was the one performing the ceremony, he read the ketubah, under the chuppah, and all of his brothers with their black hats, I'm the only rabbi not wearing a black hat, right, um, also participated in the wedding ceremony. Then they came over to me and said to me, 
We got to thank you. We don't know what you guys are doing, but for all these years, nothing affected our brother. You somehow have changed his life. The other example is we often get conversion candidates and partners who get connected with Chabad. You know, Chabad is just a really out there outreach institution, but they have a challenge. Their challenge is they don't really do conversion. Right? So a lot of the people who come through their doors are in interdating, intermarried situations, but they don't really can, they can't really do anything with them because they don't really do conversion, right? So they kind of end up kind of like on a gerbil's wheel, you know, a little bit. Now, what we um, do, what we've had is two very interesting situations. One, we have found some, one Chabad rabbi who, while he himself can't do the conversion, he's starting to um, refer people to us and will fully accept our conversion. So that's a big, big um, step for us. The second is we had um, another couple who was also involved with the Chabad, one that probably wouldn't refer um, candidates to anyone, not just to us, but to anyone, and was keeping this person on a gerbil's wheel. They eventually found us and went through our conversion process, and we had the other Chabad rabbi who's referring converse to us call him up, and he has now accepted that conversion, and he will perform the wedding of that couple. So that's also, from our perspective, a really big step. One of the other interesting results of this connection to Chabad, I don't know if you're aware of this, but once a year, all the Chabad rabbis come together and they have a giant dinner. It's the largest kosher dinner in the history of the world and to date, right? So it's a bunch of Chabad rabbis and me. <laughs> I now get invited every year because of this connection to Chabad. So it's quite a thing to, to see that every year. Okay, let me pause now. And before I go to the next part of the lecture, um, I'd like to see if anyone has any questions. Please, over there. So, uh, first of all, I'm wondering how your conversion differs from a conservative conversion. And um, second of all, uh, what the Jewish observance that you said that they, your conversion leads to. Right. So maybe, the, maybe it's the same answer to the question. Maybe it's one answer for both questions. I, I, I don't like to speak on behalf of other conversion boards. I don't know what the standards would be of a conservative Beitin, but I can tell you what our standards are. We expect our conversion candidates to be Shomer Shabbat, to keeping the Sabbath, and to keeping kosher fully um, at the time of conversion. And we want that to occur several months before the final stage of um, conversion. Now, it's interesting, um, when um, this was brought to my attention by Rabbi Risk, and I was curious to know how that was going to go, because that's asking a lot of a conversion candidate. We've had no problem with it whatsoever. Um, they're all thrilled to do it. Um, I think at the moment they hear that, it is a lot to swallow, but as they get more into the process and we say to them, look, Rome wasn't built in a day. Jerusalem wasn't built in a day. Take it on slowly. Start keeping Shabbat a little bit at a time. Start getting your home kosher a little bit at a time. Start keeping kosher outside of your home a little bit at a time. What we found is, is that they just naturally get into it, and it's not really such a hassle to them. Um, I think in general, our philosophy of Judaism is that we expose people to Judaism. We don't impose it on them. I think that's the, I can't say what the distinction is between us 
and reform and conservative conversion boards, but I can tell you the difference between us and more right-wing orthodox conversion boards is that we're exposing people to Judaism. We're not imposing it on them. And I think when you expose people through love, joy, and brotherhood, I think they're going to want to do these things. And that's what we're seeing. And we're seeing it continue to go on beyond conversion. Could I maybe come back to give other someone else a chance? Go ahead. What is your position on gay, lesbian, transsexual? Right, so I, I have to delineate between myself and my organization. Me, myself, I'm, do you mean my position vis-a-vis -vis conversion or, or, or general? General and conversion. Okay, so, all right, so I'm only speaking for myself right now. I'm not speaking for my organization. For me, I'm fully accepting of, um, of, of anyone in, in that category. Um, I believe that God created people in the image of God, and it does not make logical sense to me that someone could not engage in that uh, in a way that they're naturally created. I think in many ways, the Orthodox rabbis who have a problem with these people have more of a theological problem than I do, because where do you go with that? Where do you go with there being a God who creates people in a way they can't function? As far as conversion goes, I would have no problem converting those people. And I have done a number of child conversions um, for um, gay couples um, who um, do surrogates and then need to convert um, the child to Judaism. Uh, that's a, a very a popular thing. Maybe some of you know Rabbi Steve Greenberg, um, who's the only out gay Orthodox rabbi in the world. He was featured in the film Trembling Before God. Um, I was one of the rabbis on, of the Beit Dean that converted his daughter to Judaism. And, you know, before, um, Ari said, I'm always making trouble, I'm getting into trouble. So I believe this. What gets you into trouble in this world is going to get you out of trouble in the world to come. I believe one of the things that will, I will have to say to God when I go before God on the Kise, at the Kisei HaKavo, the chair of honor, is I converted Steve Rabbi, Rabbi Steve Greenberg's daughter, and that's the thing that's going to get me an easy pass into heaven. Now, my organization, this one other point, my organization is not doing that. I'm doing that with another Beiti. The reason for that I want to be very specific with. Um, we are now, my organization is just under siege. There's just so many battles we can fight. Right? We can't fight that battle. So as an organization, we've decided not to go in that direction. But when those people come to me, I have a place for them to go. I can't convert them through that Beitin, but I can convert them through another Beitin. And it is an Orthodox Beitin. Yeah. Can you clarify the administration of the office of the chief rabbi? I thought there were two chief rabbis. There are. Israel, one for the one Sephardic and one Ashkenazi. So when you're talking about what the chief rabbinate office says, are you talking about what these two people have decided? Yeah, it's not relevant. Um, there, there, there's a subdivision within the chief rabbinate's office that handles conversion. Um, and, that's, and, it's, and it's a monolithic policy regardless of Sephardic or Ashkenazi. If anything, in some cases, you know, conversion is a little trickier in the Sephardic world. Like certain communities within the Sephardic world have formal edicts against conversion. Um, the Syrian Jewish community will not accept any conversion. It doesn't matter how strict it's accepted. You basically become persona non grata if you marry a convert, as strict as that conversion might go. Um, and by the way, we just recently converted someone who's going to marry a Syrian man. Is that for Syrian 
Jews living in Syria? Or no, I don't think there's any Syrian Jews left in Syria. I hope there's not. Um, no, the Syrian Jewish community in America is mainly based in two locations, Flatbush, Brooklyn, and Deal, New Jersey. And sometimes the people have houses in both places. Big houses. Mentioned briefly uh, uh, the Jews uh, from Spain and Portugal who were uh, the Adosim who were spread out and yeah. there were many here. But before that, there were a lot of uh, uh, dispersion of Jews, uh, even from the time of the diaspora, yeah. and Jews were spread into uh, Asia and India and Africa. Yeah. And there are Jews there who don't know they're Jews. Correct. But we're trying to find them and to bring them back into the fold. You're correct. So um, I have, the only reason I mentioned the crypto Jews of Spain is that's been only my encounter. Um, however, Rabbi Riskit has been working with a lot of the Jews in Uganda and trying to convert to that them to Judaism. So that is a phenomenon that's going on. He makes regular trips to Uganda. Um, over here. Wasn't there an attempt to uh, not recognize Rabbi Riskin? Yeah, so that's a very important story. Uh, I should share that story for those who don't know it. Um, when you're a chief rabbi of a city in Israel, there's a mandatory retirement age. It's 75. However, you can get an automatic five-year extension if you're in physically good shape, uh, if you're in, um, your mental capacity is good, and everyone likes you and you're doing a good job as the chief rabbi of the city. On, when Rabbi Riskin turned 75, he just assumed he was going to get his automatic five-year extension. He received a letter from the chief rabbinate's office saying to him that he has to come to a meeting. Um, the meeting was probably comparable to the meeting Galileo was invited to by the Vatican. Right? And what they were taking odds with with him were two issues. One, this conversion issue. And two, the fact that he has um, female Orthodox clergy serving in uh, the city of Efrat and part of his rabbinic organization in the city of Efrat. There are female Orthodox clergy there. And they didn't like this too much. Um, anyway, when this story broke, in Israel, as well as in the diaspora, it became a major, major story in Israeli newspapers, as well as Anglo-Jewish um, newspapers throughout uh, the, um, the diaspora. And the chief rabbinate took a tremendous level of heat. Overnight, um, Rabbi Riskin really became a major celebrity for the cause of pluralism to some degree in Israel. Just to give you an extent of how big his um, star power grew, he was on his way back um, to um, Israel from America, and he got on an LL plane, and everyone on the plane stood up and applauded, including the stewardesses, who don't like anyone, right? So um, that's how big it got. Eventually, the um, chief rabbinate's office had a backpedal on the issue, and they did, in fact, uh, give him his extension uh, as chief rabbi of Efrat. While this was going on, the residents of Efrat sent a uh, letter to the chief rabbi's office saying, don't bother to appoint anyone else as chief rabbi of the city of Efrat. The only chief rabbi we will recognize, no matter who you send us, is Rabbi Risk. Over here. Okay, I've been told by a um, prominent Chabad rabbi that a conversion to Judaism is not legitimate unless the person being converted subscribes to, and I assume this means openly subscribes to, and says that they believe 
in the, the literal truth of the Exodus. It is the first commandment of the Ten Commandments, that the Lord our God is one who's fed us from, uh, from Egypt. Uh, is that a case that some kind of statement has to be made for a legitimate Orthodox conversion? I have never that you believe. I've never heard. You believe in the truth of this stuff. I've never heard that. I've never seen that. I poured over. I think almost every primary source in conversion. Um, I never have seen such a thing. The core thing you need to do when you convert to Judaism is engage in what's called Kabbalah Mitzvah. The acceptance of the 613 commandments. I have never seen anything about the exodus in Egypt. Some, some people over here do not hear the question. The question is, is that someone has to make a commitment to the historical accuracy of the exodus in Egypt. I, and, and my answer was, I've never heard that, nor have I seen that in any of the primary sources I've studied on the topic of conversion. You, you, have, to, you have to openly say that you believe in the 16th. You have to accept it. You have to accept the commandment. Yes. Isn't the first, the first commandment of the Ten Commandments one of those? I wouldn't call that a commandment. I'd call it a statement. There's, by the way, you should be aware that what's called the Ten Commandments is a very erroneous name for that document. It shouldn't be called the Ten Commandments. It should be called the Ten Statements. Some of them are not commandments. Some of them are really purely statements. What's more is some of them are infinitely more than Ten Commandments. Right? They're really called the Ten Statements, and in fact, in Hebrew, they're not called the Ten Commandments. They're called the Aseret Hadibro, which translates as Ten Statements. The fact you call it the Ten Commandments gives the impression that there is only Ten Commandments, or somehow these are the top Ten Commandments of Judaism, like the Dick Clark's Top Ten Commandments of Judaism. That's nonsense. All commandments in Judaism are 100% equal to each other. The only exception being three, not to murder, not to engage in bizarre and strange sexual behavior, and idol worship. Those three are the only three that are highlighted above the other 613. I don't know if I'm, I'm pushing you to your next point, but I wanted to, you talk a little more about your work with non-Orthodox rabbis involved in your program and how that works as an example. Great. Uh, um, this, this brings us to a new direction in, in the talk. Um, would it be all right to go in that direction now and we'll pause for questions for a while? He's asking me how we work with non-Orthodox rabbis. Right. So uh, we, that, that does happen very often where not only will we perform conversions for people who are coming from Reform and Conservative backgrounds, but we actually get referrals from Reform and Conservative rabbis. So we actually received a referral from a very well-known and popular conservative rabbi I'd say almost in these parts, about 40 minutes away from here. You might know his name, Rabbi David Wolpe. Especially interesting considering your comment about the exodus of Egypt. I know he's very much known for that famous sermon he gave, right? Anyway, Rabbi Wolpe referred us a candidate, and not only did we eventually convert um, that woman uh, to Judaism, um, but Rabbi Riskin and Rabbi Wolpe uh, jointly performed the wedding together. Another interesting um, example um, of this is not one um, that I've done with the organization I work for, but because of getting involved in this, I've kind of become seen, at least in the New York area, I don't know, in other places, as sort of like an expert in the field of conversion. So from time to time, I get brought in to um, work in conversions that are even outside of my organization. So I'll just share... Uh, two that were very, very interesting with you. Um, one, 
uh, as was mentioned by Ari in, in my bio, um, I used to work as the chief education uh, director at a very large reform synagogue um, in New York. It's called Central Synagogue and has over 2,000 families. And uh, the um, rabbi of that synagogue is uh, Rabbi Angela Buchtal, who is, a, I'm honored to say, is a very close friend of mine. Um, she called me up one day and said to me she had an interesting situation where she needed my help. Um, um, there was a couple um, who had previously been connected, at least the, the, the husband had been connected and his family had been con connected for multiple generations to a conservative synagogue in New York. He met this young woman who was not Jewish and when it came time for marriage, the conservative rabbi, like many conservative rabbis who are in this dilemma, basically said, there's nothing I can do. They ended up coming to a very wonderful introduction to Judaism class at Central Synagogue. They eventually had a child. That child would be fully accepted as Jewish based on the reform movement's position of patrilineal descent in the reform synagogue, but they wouldn't be accepted in that conservative synagogue. So they wanted the child converted. What's more is, due to something going on in the family's background, they didn't just want it to be a conservative conversion that would get him accepted in that conservative side. They wanted an orthodox conversion, even though they weren't of an orthodox orientation. But something in the family background, they, because something in the family background, they wanted that. So Rabbi Buchtel, and, and simultaneously, they wanted to include both the two reform rabbis that they got involved with in this class and the conservative rabbi that they were previously affiliated with and get an orthodox conversion. So Rabbi Buchtel called me up and said, David, is there any way you can help me with this? I said, no problem. Now, I can't do this with my organization for the same reason I responded to you about the fact that we're just fighting too many fronts, but I will never say no to someone. If there is a solution to their problem, I'll find it, but I can't necessarily find it with my organization. I might have to create an independent Orthodox Bay team to do it. So what I did was I asked two colleagues to join me in forming a Bay team, and we essentially had two Bay teams meeting at the same time for the conversion of this young man. In other words, six rabbis were at the mikvah, three Orthodox rabbis, two reform rabbis, one conservative rabbi. Three and three. And we did one meeting of a bait dean together with our two separate bait deans. We did one dunk of this young man in the mikvah, and we issued two separate documents. And we achieved this family's goal. The other situation that I was involved in is not with non-Orthodox rabbis, but I think you'll find it interesting nonetheless. Um, has anyone ever heard of a city called Barranquilla? Yeah. Do you know where it is? Colombia. So there's only um, a couple thousand Jews in Barranquilla, but something's going very right in Barranquilla. They have a wonderful rabbi there by the name of Rabbi Daniel Ashkenazi, and he is like a Pied Piper who's getting not just Jews into Judaism, he's getting non-Jews into Judaism, right? There are people there who are just um, naturally, by reading the Bible from their Catholic perspective, finding their way to Judaism, they find their way to Rabbi Daniel Ashkenazi, and they want to convert to Judaism. With 
very little kosher food available with a very small observant Jewish community. There are people becoming fully observant with no intermarriage situation going on, just people choosing to be Jewish and no craziness either. Like they just want to do this and they kind of do it. Now, Rabbi Ashkenazi's background is an interesting background to understand this story. You need to hear the context. Rabbi Ashkenazi is a Syrian Jew. Remember what I said about Syrian Jews before? So that makes it interesting already that most Syrian Jews and Syrian rabbis do not accept conversion. But it gets even more interesting. He's a Syrian Jew from the Syrian Sephardic Jewish community of Mexico. Um, he um, moved to Israel to study to become a rabbi at a very prestigious um, um, religious Zionist yeshiva in Israel called Merkaz Arab that was founded by the son of Rav Kook, the first chief rabbi of pre-state Israel. Um, then he did the army, and there's a program when you do the army, when you're a soldier from the diaspora, what's called a lone soldier, you get hooked up with a family. Talk about hashkacha pratit, talk about divine providence. The family they get hooked up with is a family from Venezuela who converted to Judaism. The mother, the father, and their daughter, at a very young age, converted to Judaism. They made Aliyah, and the daughter never really thought of herself as South American. She left it at a very young age. She speaks Spanish, but she converts at a very young age, and she would seem like any other modern Orthodox Israeli woman in Israel. He gets sent to their home for Shabbat. He starts talking to this girl. One thing leads to another. Mazel tov, they're engaged. Not so quick. His family is Syrian. His parents and brother do not come to the wedding. The rabbi performing the wedding had to walk him down the aisle at his own wedding. By the time their first child turns one, the parents finally accept them. The brother still does not. Um, that's already in his background before he gets to Barankia. When he gets to Barankia, one day, his daughter turns to him and says to him, Abba, I want to be a rabbi. He says the following to himself. He says, I can either change my daughter or I'm going to change Judaism. I've decided to change Judaism. Now, at this time, he doesn't know that in the city of Afrat, there are women Orthodox clergy. He doesn't know that in Riverdale, where I live, there's a yeshiva training women Orthodox clergy. He doesn't know about, any of me, about me and my whack job Orthodox rabbi friends. He thinks he's the only one in the world who's facing this issue. Goes on the internet, and he discovers there's other Orthodox rabbis like him. He joins the Orthodox rabbinic organization that I'm a member of, the IRF, the International Rabbinic Fellowship, which is a more progressive Orthodox rabbinical organization. He comes to our convention. He starts meeting us. Then he simultaneously has this situation with conversion, where he's getting these people ready for conversion. But there's one problem. He has no beiti. He flies me, and I think you met the other rabbi, Rabbi Asher Lepatin, who's the president of the YCT Rabbinical School. 
this more open-minded rabbinical school in Riverdale, not the women's rabbinical school, that's called Yeshivat Maharat. The male rabbinical school is called YCT, but they're in the same building. I think a building that many of you visited on your trip to New York. He flies us to Barankia, and in the course of one day, we converted 11 people to Judaism in the final stage of Judaism, where we weren't allowed to use the mikvah. The Sparta community, who, who controls the mikvah, and the Sparta community, by the way, get this, is served by an Olabavitch rabbi. He is a Sephardic rabbi, but they won't accept him, right? So they won't let us into the mikvah, so what do we do? We go to the ocean. And then right out of the ocean, one of the couples was already married, but they weren't religiously married, we married them, all on the same day. Okay, so they said that in the first century of the Common Era, 10% of the world, known then, were fellow travelers of Judaism. Um, and now, this is all wonderful stuff, but occasionally, one looks around at all you're doing, which, much of which is wonderful, and you say to yourself, some of this is Mishigas the legalities of what's going on and the, you know, I have, I have children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren in Israel. They're from, it's wonderful. But sometimes we get so caught up in the legalities of it that you wonder if we aren't going to destroy ourselves over some of it. Well, I mean, I don't know what you define as mishigas. I mean, I guess, you know, mishigas is in the eye of the beholder. I don't consider what I do Mishigagash. I, I, I consider what I do um, very seriously, and I take Jewish law very seriously. I believe Jewish law and the way I approach Judaism is the core of what Judaism is about. Now, there are approaches to Judaism that are non-legal based. I very much respect those approaches to Judaism, but that's not my approach. My, my Judaism is a Judaism based in Jewish law. However, it's also based in matters of the heart. And I believe there's a balance between matters of the heart and halakha. But I never compromise that halakha. The difference is I let the, my, the matters of the heart let me see a moral imperative and then I find a halakhic solution to that moral imperative. And I think that's what we're doing. Yes, but we're talking about business with the chief rabbi. That's them. I'm, I'm, I, 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 I'm challenging their authority. I can't defend them. I don't want to defend them. I don't agree with them. I'm telling you what I do. Okay. I would say the difference is, and the niceness, by the way, is should should be taken. The niceness should be taken seriously. And let me let me just give you a story to emphasize that point. Well, before I ever got involved in this as my full time occupation, when I was just in another job at another time, I would get brought in to alternative conversions. Alternative conversions in the Orthodox world have been going on a long while before we ever got into this business, except they were more ad hoc. Right? So, I'm sorry? Afterwards, let us know what alternative. In other words, a conversion outside of the RCA or the chief rabbi's office, right? So, um, one day I get a call about a woman who's been turned down for conversion by both the chief rabbi and the rabbinical council of America. And she's now ready for her final stage of conversion. Would I sit on the baiting? I, of course, agree. I sit down and I meet this woman and she tells me her entire story. She's, I forgot where she's from, but she's like from some like really 
not Jewish place. Like, I don't, I mean, I know that in my mind that's different than your mind because you're from here. But like in my mind, you know, like a lot of places are not Jewish in my mind because I live in this bizarre place called New York, right? So I don't know where it was, but let's say it was like Nebraska. Like that, that's like, in my mind, that seems very not Jewish. You know what I mean? Like I, so I kind of have like this like Lenny Bruce approach to Judaism. Like where, you know, if you're from New York, you're basically Jewish, even if you're Catholic, right? Anyway, so... Anyway, so she, you know, she's like this very not Jewish woman, like she's a nice Presbyterian woman from some place, whatever it is, and she goes to college somewhere on the East Coast, and she meets this Jewish guy from Teaneck, New Jersey. Teaneck, New Jersey is like a really ortho-Jewish place, right? And they somehow fall in love, and she starts getting into Judaism, right? He decides he's going to do um, this very very high-quality Jewish educators training program at the Pardes Institute in Jerusalem. Pardes is this kind of non-denominational Jewish educational um, institution. It's wonderful. And they offer an educator's track where you study at Pardes, and I believe you get a master's, I think, at Tel Aviv University in, in Jewish education. It's really top quality. And then you get sent eventually to teach at a day school in the diaspora if you could ever be fortunate enough to interview someone from, one, from this program for your local day school, take them. They're going to be some of the best educators you'll ever see out there. Anyway, so this is what he decides to do. She decides that she's going to move to Israel with him, you know, while he's studying this, to be with him, but also to pursue conversion. She decides to study in a, um, what's called a Karbachian yeshiva. It's a yeshiva that has the philosophy of Rabbi Shlomo Karbach. So there's lots of singing and dancing and clapping and meditating and studying of like all kinds of, you know, guru-y, Hasidic, you know, 60s-like things, you know? Um, and it's in this town, it's this part of Jerusalem called Nachlaot. And Nachlaot's like this very um, kind of like hippie-ish part, you know, neighborhood in Jerusalem. It's just outside of uh, Machana Yehuda, the open market. My sister-in-law lives there. She's not anyway a hippie, and they drive her nuts. Anyway, so um, she decides to do that. She also gets a job while she's studying there and becoming, you know, really, really observant. Um, she gets a job working for um, a religious family, taking care of their children. Now, I don't know if you all know this, and, 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 and if you don't know it, you're going to be offended by what I'm about to say, but it is what it is. There's a kind of a law in Judaism that Orthodox Jews follow called Bishal um, Yisrael and Bishal Aku, right? The food has to be cooked by Jews. Now, fancy kosher restaurants, like in New York and other places, um, by and large don't have Jewish cooks, but it's dealt with by the mashkiach, right, turning on the ovens. Right? So as long as they began the process, it's fine. I don't want to get into a whole debate whether this is right or wrong or good and bad. It's just the law. I don't know if I love it myself so much, but I have enough things I'm trying to, to challenge in, in, in the traditional Jewish world. This is not going to be on my list. Anyway, so this girl has them light the oven every day before they leave, and that way she can cook for the children. Lo and behold, she tells us in the meeting at the Beitim, the oven light, the, the, the pilot light goes out. What is she going to do? How is she going to cook for these girls, for these, these little kids? So she takes a yard site lamp, 
walks like some huge distance up and down the hills of, you know, Jerusalem with the wind blowing. She gets it lit by a Jewish family, and then she's like, tells us how she's davening. <laughs> this world of you know, like the whole way back, like hoping it won't, it, 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 won't, it won't blow out, and she lights the oven. How can you not convert this girl? She's the most serious person I've ever met in my life, right? Yet, the chief rabbinate turned her down, and the RCA turned her down. Now, why they turned her down? That's the interesting story. They meet her and they say, well, reason one that we're turning you down is you're in a relationship, and you're only really converting to marry this guy. Let me tell you something. There's no guy from Teaneck that's worth doing everything she's doing. I guarantee this girl could have done a lot better. You know, she could have met, met some wonderful guy from Nebraska, you know, you know, some farmer or something. I don't know. You know, she could have married anyone she wants. She's a fantastic girl. Clearly, people don't go through this to marry some guy, right? We're asking a lot of them. The difference, I think, between us and those conversion boards that won't accept them is we get that. They simply don't get that. Reason two, reason two that they turn her down is her partner is studying at Pardes. And Pardes is problematic from their point of view. But here's the most interesting part. If reason one is a, is a reason, then why is reason two even relevant? If you're in a relationship, by definition, it shouldn't be irrelevant who you're in a relationship with or where they're studying. So what's the real answer? They were never going to accept her from the get-go. They're, they're, they're designed to say no. Whereas our goal, our goal as a conversion board is provided you're doing what we ask you to do, our goal is to say yes. We want to work with you. Whereas by definition, they're suspicious of these people. Do they even do very many conversions? I would say, and, and, and you know, they're very hesitant to publish lists and statistics, but my gut instinct tells me that most of the conversions that are performed by the chief rabbi's office or these other more right-wing or orthodox conversion boards in America are what I would call reconversions. I think in most cases, they're converting people who have, who have had their conversions invalidated by them. <laughs> so they create the problem and then they have the solution to the problem. That's my gut instinct. I can't prove that to you because I don't see their numbers. But that's my gut instinct from the, from the narrative I hear. Okay? Um, there was another question over there, yeah. Okay, so that's, that's I, I, I'd be happy to tell that story and to tell it accurately because the New York Times story was completely inaccurate. Okay. He wants me to comment on what happened with Rabbi Lookstein and his conversion candidate who was turned down um, in, by the baiting of Petach Tikva. What you have to understand about Rabbi Lookstein, and I consider myself a student of his, and I'm a good friend of his, son, of his sons, um, Rabbi Lookstein does two kinds of conversions. He does conversions through the RCA GPS system, and those conversions, by definition, must be accepted by the State of Israel, because the RCA, and the, the RCA GPS system has made a deal with the chief rabbinate's office. So it doesn't matter who that convert is. If they convert through the RCA GPS, they will be accepted by the chief rabbi's office, right? Ivanka Trump, I know everyone wants to know about this, 
was converted through the RCA GPS system. What everyone sees Rabbi Lukstein being viewed as the rabbi who converted her, that's not accurate. She was educated by another rabbi. His name is Rabbi Eli Weinstock. He's the associate rabbi at that synagogue. Rabbi Lukstein was the rabbi of record who sponsored her conversion. The actual baiting that converted her, neither of those rabbis are on. It's a standing baiting of the RCA. And they are very right-wing rabbis. Now, what's interesting about that conversion is this. I have no problem with the fact that Ivanka Trump converted. I have no problem that she dresses the way she dresses and she got that conversion. I think a lot of young women should get that conversion. My problem is not that the RCA used those standards for Ivanka Trump. My problem with the RCA is they use those standards for Ivanka Trump, but people who don't have the name Trump and don't have the future partner named Jared Kushner have a different standard. There needs to be one standard for everyone, not one for certain people and another for another people. That's my problem there. Now, the woman who got turned down by the Beitian of Petzach Tikva, they, Rabbi Luxin did not convert her through the RCA GPS system. He converted her through his own independent conversion. So by definition, she was not going to be accepted by the Beitian of Petzach Tikva because they're a Beitian that operates in the chief rabbinate system. So what, you know, people are saying and the story that's going around is really just an example of bad reporting. Okay, one last question. Well, now you asked the question, you made the statement, so how did Ivanka's standards under that Do I really need to explain that to you? Well, I mean, I know. <laughs> Do I really need to explain that? Come on. What was the question? Well, in other words, why was she given a different standard? What standard was she, what standard was she given? What are the different standards? In other words, most women who come before the baiting that converted Ivanka will be told that they can't dress that way. That's post-conversion. Post-pre-whatever. But was she told specifically she could dress that way? I don't know what was told or wasn't told. I wasn't in those meetings. But clearly, I think they had a sense of what was going on. If they didn't, they're not the most realistic persons in the world. They clearly did a different thing for her than they're doing for other people. I can't imagine that they didn't know that. That's a little far-fetched for me to believe. Um, I guess that's it. Um, thank you all for your uh, time.